0: Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of the Untethering Shame podcast. Today's guest is Barb Begolke, founder and executive director for the Center for Suicide Awareness. Barb is a force. Her focus on raising awareness and finding innovative solutions to some of the most shame-driven topics, suicide, mental health, and trauma. One of her most impactful support systems was the launching of Hopeline, a text-based crisis support line. And what I find really interesting about this, and I'm excited for us to get into when we start talking, is that she founded this in 2014, which I know doesn't seem like it's that long ago, but 10 years ago in the tech world, texting was not what it is now. So we're going to hit on that because that, again, when we think innovation, was incredible. Today, I'm honored Barb is going to share a bit more about her story, how she decided to get into this work, what drives her to create this type of change, and we are going to talk more about suicide, mental health, again, hitting on the hope line and all these other areas of support and why we need it and we need to stop being so afraid to talk about these really important issues and the ways that we can create more supportive solutions. As we'll find out, the road was not always paved or filled with support as Barb pursued these endeavors, and even almost 15 years in, there's still judgment and fear. So how does she keep showing up, and what can we all do to make this work and the conversations that need to be happening around mental health easier, more accessible, or even if they still feel hard, something we're willing to walk into with a greater degree of openness? So let's find out together.
1: I'm so excited. (laughs) I know, it is so good to be reconnected and thank you. I am so honored and grateful to be here.
0: Yeah, well, it was when I was writing that this morning and I thought about force that was really resonating with me when I thought about this conversation and just kind of the overlap that we both share in terms of What we see as being a necessity in terms of the mental health world and particularly, you know, meeting back when I still lived in Wisconsin, what we saw as pain points within the communities that we were working in and supporting and that rise to becoming a force. And so I really I'm excited to bring all of that into today's conversation. I really like to start every episode. This is, of course, my therapist hat, so you will love this, but I like (laughs) to start off every episode just doing a one-word check-in. Just where are you at? What's one word to describe how you're feeling right now in life, with this conversation, whatever comes up for you?
1: You know, it's funny. Um, I love the word gratitude Mm. because for a lot of reasons, I think we can get into these modes of why can't i this mm-hmm. is this is happening to me you know we have those forces like you talked about forces that come at us right and let's face it social media can be very brutal when we compare ourselves to you know um to the images that we see in social media but if we turn it and say but i have this blessing gratitude mm-hmm. however you want to word it that it doesn't seem so dark and heavy to carry. And I think that's the word that I keep on showing up. I was thinking about that when you were saying "Is like, how do I continue to show up? Yeah, It's that gratitude of, okay, but I get to do this. I don't mm-hmm. have to do this.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I think I've been doing that word a lot. I just did a yoga class today and they asked us to pick a word or, something that was kind of a stuck point in our lives that we were all going to take a collective inhale and then the exhale and we were going to release it. And one of the things I'm really working on is the release of expectations Mm -hmm. of other people, of myself. And, And I think being really careful because it doesn't mean I have no goals, no motivation, no drive, but I think that pressure of expectation, like you mentioned with social media, how we show up, how we compare, who's doing it better, what's going on, how much did I check off my to-do list, I'm expecting, you know, I have a three-and-a-half-year-old, any expectation about how an activity is going to go. I used to joke when she was a year, and of course, we're pandemic living, and you'd watch social media, and you'd get these here's this cute little sensory activity and it's going to last for hours. And she'd look at it and be like, fuck off, mom. I mean, obviously she's 12 months old, has no idea how to say that. And for a long time, hopefully she doesn't, but it was like, (laughs) Oh, wait a minute. But I curated this. I made everything great. And my expectation wasn't met. And I think a lot of the times when we build those stories of everything's happening to me, everything sucks. The world is great. It's kind of riddled with, expectations and then the sort of lack of i don't know if this is an actual word but sort of decentering ourselves from the the storyline a bit it's still our story so like you said we can reframe it but not everything is happening to you and about you sometimes things happen and yes. that is where we can choose to find some gratitude to have the opportunity to still be here to have something happen to us and You know, I
1: love how you say that because, like, we have these hard expectations of ourselves, Mm -hmm. and it's sort of like, okay, we build it and build it and build it, and maybe we don't have to build it so high so that we fall that high and so crashing down. And so, I love. I mean, I'm a mom too, and sometimes you think, okay, like I just saw this on Pinterest. Why Mm -hmm. are doing this? And why (laughs) am I throwing these kind of parties? And you're just going, okay. In a real reality world, how Mm -hmm. much time do we have and what's our capacity? And I think in our world, we just are stretching our capacity because the things of we should be doing or why aren't we doing it? And that that word success, I think, is such a dangerous trap because why are we judging our personal success with others? It's our journey. It's our definition and we don't need to continually compare it to others. And that's where judgments come in as well. We're not doing as good as them. Well, we don't know what they're doing and what their success is.
0: Yeah, or the context of their story and what their life was like six months prior, or will be like six months from now, and so you're time stamping somebody, putting them on a pedestal. I, I honestly, I've used ever since it happened the Will Smith at the Oscars, the slap, yeah. as the example of the pedestal and then he crashed. And yeah. the expectation that he's not human, that he doesn't have trauma, that I I do not condone the behavior. Right. But as a therapist, I can understand what happened in his brain. At least to the extent he's been willing to share publicly and you can make sense of it. But it's like we get so rigid in some of those thoughts and some of those feelings and some of those elements and we have to just kind of pause and go, I mean even the littlest thing. Like I get to make food instead of, oh my gosh, I got to cook another meal. I got to clean the kitchen again. I get to clean my kitchen to have a space I'm excited to cook in the next day. I am choosing to do these things. And I'm curious. Okay. So now you and I, and this is where we were talking offline before we hit record. I mean, we could have booked a six hour session and probably still had more time that we would want to talk. <laughs> But I'm curious because we've obviously both gotten to this point in our careers and just as people and those pursuits. And we're both really trying to figure out how we present those same invitations and opportunities to the people we support, the people that we work with. How do we choose authenticity? How do we lean into that pain and discomfort and then find gratitude in the darkest, stickiest places? And so your you know, baby, as I guess your professional baby, because you're also a mom, but... <laughs> The Center for Suicide Awareness, which is this incredible organization that has just trying to, I mean, it's got legs for days for how much impact and support it has, but I'm curious, how did you get to this place? How did you decide I'm, I'm working in this field? This is who I want to help. I'm going to reframe that mindset for myself. I want to talk about expectation. Take us through you know, maybe it's two-year-old Barb, maybe it's 22-year-old Barb, but where did the journey start and how did you fall into this work?
1: You know, what's really interesting is, for one, I'm the youngest of 11. Okay. Right there. <sighs> that says a lot, <sighs> right? Yeah. 10 yep. girls, one boy. And so I, it was interesting. A couple years ago, I really did some work around who am I? And I went, okay, I'm complex, but that's not a negative. But sometimes we take that as a negative. And like, we're too much for somebody. And I say, well, you know what? We can be too much. Or is they t- just not willing to step into being in that spot? Hmm. Um, and I think because of that, I always was like, I want to be my own voice. I, I have, you know, 10 sisters that nothing I could do was different. You know, we went to the same schools, you know, it's, it was sort of like, I got to figure out my own identity. So I've like literally booked after high school and went to be a tour guide at the Grand Canyon, knowing no one.
0: (laughs) one. Had you like been to the Grand Canyon? How
1: come you picked that? It just, no. Okay. So this first time, got it. (laughs) Yeah. Like had never even been to the West, you know, um, And you know where Wisconsin is. It's like, you're just like, okay, let's just go 2,000 miles that way. right? Um, And that was like my stepping stone of sometimes you have to make that brave step into things Mm. that you have no clue about. And I can tell you it was a life-changing experience being a kid from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, being very sheltered, very, you know, um, middle class. I knew everybody going to Catholic Mm -hmm. school to now you are doing things like um, taking people down the canyon on mules. And majority of people have spent their whole life saving to do this trip. Um, Mm. And I'm going, wow, look at the diversity and look at the culture and the lack of judgment. And Mm. that sort of set me on to be like, why can't I do things? Um, And it was freeing not yeah. being under the shadow of all of my sisters. And I do yeah. have one brother. Um, and I think that that kept me grounded through so many things. I had the absolute honor of working with the Native American culture, the Hopi Indians, learning some of the grounding, you know, way back then where that wasn't even talked about, but grounding and keeping your center. Um, and, the, and the appreciation of we're standing on earth that many 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 generations have paved the way for us to be sitting on this earth mm. and um that's that's part of the authenticness that i that i keep on trying to make sure that i stay up and show up as despite a lot of what we we have society try to mold us into well it sounds
0: like a very early introduction to mindfulness as well. And just being present. I think that's a big thing that so many of us, I had a person the other day talk about how she's like, I, I realize everyone I talk to, including myself, we're constantly, I can't wait till fall. I can't wait until my kid is this old. I can't wait until this thing is done and sort of wishing away our time. And it sounds like for you, it was, you know, you're, you're honoring and witnessing these very beautiful moments for the people you're giving the tours to, but you're seeing the importance of just grounding yourself, whether it's the most important day, their favorite day of their life, or the hardest day of their life, or or an average day, as oh. most of our days are, and just being in that. And, okay, so that comes, you are, you're again, finding yourself, this is, I see now sort of the openness of the part of this puzzle around authenticity, around, I want to find my voice, I want to be myself, And I'm learning what that means to do that and to be present in who I am and in in curiosity for the people around me. So this is, you know, 18, 19, I'm assuming at this point, did you have the mental health side? Like, you know, were you talking about things like depression, anxiety,
1: mental health? Oh, absolutely not. Because in my family growing up, you just, yeah, you knew that the uncle would be off Right. Because that's mm-hmm. what you'd be like. But that's just who he is. The stigma was so. Uh, I mean, you want to talk about let's just keep this quiet. Right. I know for a fact that my mom suffered through her own mental health, illness um, and struggles. But yet you didn't know that because you didn't right. talk about it. It wasn't right. brought up. It was just, you know, mom's tired. She's staying in bed instead mm. of maybe mama has depression.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, And so forth, and so I think for me it was an awakening of how do I show up without having the ability to be like, okay, you're so and so's sister, so and so's you know family, mm-hmm. and from there, oh my gosh, from ebbs and flows, from schooling to education to to so many things, to moving back to Wisconsin out of obligation. And I say that because my parents were aging, and it was maybe it's time to come back to do the right thing. Um, and I don't regret that at all. Um, I, I got to see my parents, you know, prior to their death, um, and I got to to raise my uh, kids in a in a very um, family safe type of area, um, and so I don't regret that. But I think where the real thing, be, 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 besides doing education and, and, you know, getting degrees in psychology and so forth, which always intrigued me, I had good people that mm-hmm. would spark my interest to continue to do more. You know, mm-hmm. the I, I believe we all have opportunities to be that mentor, even if we don't label ourselves as mentors. Mm-hmm. You know, meeting people that all of a sudden sparked you to take on it an additional class or, Hey, have you thought about this? And so, I mean, even today, I I just became a Reiki master because it's like, why not? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? um, mm-hmm. So continue to doing those kind of things, I think is where my mental health journey was. And then the turning point of where I started the center was um, I was working with law enforcement, um, as a crisis responder and I can tell you, I can tell you this to this exact moment, we would be doing death notifications um, and the Wisconsin roads are are, are treacherous in the winter time. Mm-hmm. And I could do a death notification with law enforcement and say that their loved one died on the icy roads of Wisconsin and people grieved and we saw sadness. But I saw something else. There was a layer of community bringing over hot dishes and how can I help? And I'll, I'll bring in the mail and all these help, help, help. But then I would do notifications and they would say it was a suicide. And no one ever brought over casseroles, it seemed like. And people pulled the shades and whispered. And there was that shame. And I was like, so wait a minute. They're both losing somebody. They're both grieving. But one deserves a casserole. One doesn't. And that did not sit well with me at all. Mm -hmm. Because I thought, this is a huge, huge stigma that literally stops people from doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. And I thought, these people are grieving. They've lost somebody. But now we have to put a layer of shame on it. How how do we reach them then? Right. And so, like when we look at statistics, and I hate statistics, if you know me, right? Because <laughs> these are people; mm-hmm. they have names; they're human beings. Um, how do how do they grieve? How do they process their grief? You know, some of the saddest things I would hear is when people would say, "I lied about my my loved one's death because I was too embarrassed. It was a mm-hmm. suicide, and I didn't want judgment, religious or otherwise." Yeah. And I said, "Man." What if there was a safe place, free from judgment, free from the stigma, to, to just have that safe, sacred spot that people could share how painful it is and how it is such a unique death because it brings mm-hmm. on the shoulda, coulda, wouldas, and guilt and blame. Mm-hmm. And that, I can tell you, I was so naive. That's, that was it. I just wanted a safe little support group to be like, hey, this is, this is okay, and let's do a walk. And maybe a couple couple people will show up to say, here, we'll walk the streets to share this. And that was the seed of what the center is. And mm-hmm. I think back and go, boy, I had low expectations.
0: <laughs> well, but you didn't know what expectations to have because you didn't grow up talking about this stuff. I mean, the fact that you were even open to thinking about it differently, the fact that you noticed it from that place of curiosity, again, maybe rooted back to a lot of that work that you did in psychology, maybe some of it, again, the grounding components, that curiosity piece. But it's not like even in your psychology classes, they were having full conversations about suicide and how to deal with it. It was stigmatized even in the field. And so you are suddenly noticing something, going to a neutral position to say, hmm, I'm wondering why why is this designed this way? Why is the community, why is the system such that this one is this way and this one is this way? And then you were just willing to start a different conversation. And did you notice when you were first doing some of this work, did you have some of those internalized biases as well? Like, oh yeah, there is something wrong about suicide or something embarrassing. Or were you kind of immediately like, oh no, this deserves a different look.
1: You know, it was interesting, I think, when we do our own work of unconscious biases, right, Mm -hmm. that we don't know that we necessarily, for me, I had to go back to my original roots of, I went to 12 years of Catholic school.
0: Mm. Yes, of
1: course there's some in there. (laughs) Right. How could there not be? How could there not be? You know, and I'm sitting there thinking of, of. Going back and going, oh, my gosh, this was sort of put into you that, you know, this is a sin and, you know, all of those hmm. things that were put on. So I had yeah. to literally do my own work of saying, where did, where did I get this? Like, where did hmm. I get this unconscious biases? Like, did I just create it? And I had to sit there and go, wait a minute. That's right. I grew up very strict Catholic. I grew up with Catholic upbringing. And this is what was portrayed as something wrong. You know, and that's mm-hmm. why, you know, the the verbiage of saying they died by suicide versus they committed just brings a whole nother spin to it, mm-hmm. commit a crime or a sin, but they died by suicide. That suicide was the killer. Right. Um, I think brings that whole dynamic. So definitely it was me doing some work of saying, wait, how do I feel about it?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And learning alongside the people that you're trying to support and and create opportunities for them to learn, too, which I think is anything that we're doing in this field. If we ever get to a point where we're like, I am the expert on this and I have no biases and I have nothing to work through and nothing is difficult for me. You've tried to elevate your status above humanity. That's just not how it works. I'm going to get yep. it wrong and
1: have new biases that come up the rest of my life. But and I want to continue to learn about it. Because it's ever evolving and that's growth. And I've always sort of, I love that you said that. It's like, I never want to be where I'm like, oh, I know that. I know that. Right. I want to continually grow. I want right. to continually be scribbling on a notebook going, oh my gosh, this is amazing. I never knew this. Um, that's growth. And that's what challenges you to continue to grow and not be stagnant in this field of saying, I just want to do status quo.
0: Right. Which, I mean, and I'm new to that side, honestly, because I think as someone that went through a lot of trauma, as someone that had to navigate my own mental health stuff, I was very much, I performed through perfectionism. That was my way of, of processing pain, of being, dealing with my shame, of not having to face the fear of rejection, disappointment, all the things that my trauma had introduced. And so I was very much the performer. I was, I can tell you how, what my grades were. I can't tell you 98% of what we studied in school because I, I did what I needed to do to get the A. I didn't learn in the same way. And because that wasn't safe. And so I think even in the field of therapy of mental health, we know a lot of people that get into this work have their own things, either direct or indirect. I think sometimes it's that it's, I have to be at this level to be okay enough to be in the room, not because I think I'm better than you, but because I don't think I'm good enough to be here unless I am that way. So I can't afford to learn. I'm, I can't afford to be wrong. If we go politics, if we go mental health, if we go any situation, the fear of the conversation is: what does it say about me if I'm wrong?
1: And that is all rooted back to shame. Absolutely. And I think we got to be careful. Like when we get into like, and and I'm, I I also share like you know I had a lot of trauma, a lot of trauma mm-hmm. growing up, and a lot of trauma throughout my my um, my twenties and thirties. And I and I sit there and I I go. And when I hear people say, "Oh my gosh, whatever your Aces score, right? Whatever your Aces score is, determines who you are." Well, I would have a very bad Aces score if you put me on that uh, chart, so to speak. Right. So I'm always really careful of, like, you know, don't put people in boxes. Right. Don't label them because that's what they'll, that's what they might actually just show up as. And I so can relate. I I was a straight A student. I was the national honors. For me, it was let me be doing something that one of my sisters hadn't done and it never could be accomplished. Never. Um, and so it was like national honor society. Yep. They did that. So, yeah, you know, right. it was just a, almost like this is what it should be. And so for me, how it would show up with always saying yes, when I should have said no to things. Sure. Yes, I can do that. Yes. And it was that whole aspect of, um, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't be doing this. And, and I can tell you, um, creating the center, I definitely got some of that. Um, mm-hmm. You know, who are you to be doing this? And it, that was me going back to childhood. Yeah, who am I? Like, right. should I be doing this? And I think that's where we really have to have some of these conversations of saying, be careful when you say certain words to people, because mm-hmm. you have no idea what their backstory is. You're not looking through their scrapbook. You right. don't know what words have hit them or triggered them or have traumatized them. And so, right. you know, when people always say, let's be kinder, I always say, you, you're not reading their scrapbook and you don't know what these words could do.
0: Hmm. Well, and I think even as we're, kind of going into that side of things too. I think a lot about how, again, going back to context and expectation, kind of where we started the conversation even of what expectations of ourselves, of each other, of the community are created from those different experiences and how, and we've seen it, how that creates systems of oppression, how that creates systems of shame, how that creates systems of performance. And I think, somewhere along the line and this is you know decades before you before me where you all, you got the subliminal messaging that mental health was bad because otherwise they would have said no mom has depression right no this is what's going on with your uncle it was no no this is the easier thing to swallow this is what we do this is how you perform we got the midwestern culture of pull yourself up and keep going that's it's inconvenient to have a feeling Yes. Your job is action, whatever action is. If it's working on the farm, if it's cleaning up the house so that mom doesn't have to do this, but there is a shift away from those things. And we've moved the needle more towards communicating about these things, but we're still a product of intergenerational transmission of shame, of oppression. Yeah. And so I think when you started, I could imagine when this idea happened again, part of this was probably, this is a new idea. My sisters have never done this. I'm going to (laughs) explore, you know, nobody else was doing a walk. Nobody else was talking about suicide. So there's a little part of you that was probably self-satisfied of, oh, this is, this is mine. I can do this mixed with, and I want to help. I want something to happen. And so, so you start with something that, again, you you had a low bar because you were just exploring and it has grown. And what was the pushback you got when you mentioned that? I mean, to me, I'm thinking, yeah, but I'm, again, I'm seeing you after, was it 2009, right? Is that when the center right. was? Yeah. So, it's you know, we're almost 15 years in, I am, I met you almost Five years in, I think, maybe even a little bit more than five years in. So that was there. But tell me, what was the pushback? Why were people not wanting you to do this or have these conversations or not wanting to support you in it?
1: I think a lot of times people, when they're fearful, they push back versus sit back and have maybe understanding. And, you know, people have asked me this, they're like, well, aren't you bitter against, you know, that you didn't get the support that you A had hoped for and B that really would have helped go, make you go farther. And I don't, that's where gratitude comes in because you know what, it made me go that farther out to find the support, to find the answers. Um, and so there is no bitterness about it. It's more of, okay. I guess this is what maybe I expected
0: mm. and it
1: didn't happen. So now we have choices, quit, walk away or find other supporters. And I think that's something that everybody can can relate to is we know who we just fit in and where we belong, you know? And I think that's something that we, always have to check our own work of are we just doing things with people because we want to fit in or do I just feel really authentic with these people because I know I belong
0: one I could imagine a part of you too realizing you are you're not in a I don't know how I want to say it, but basically this idea that the experience you had is mirroring what the experience is of a lot of people who are actively experiencing suicidal ideation, where they might reach out for support or help and they don't have it. And they don't necessarily have the strength or capacity or skill set to keep reaching out to those further and further zones and what the impact of that lack of support has done. And so there was a part of you I could imagine that had some awareness that you doing this was doing something that is too high, high of an expectation for somebody in a state where they're already not getting what they need. And the system is designed to go against them. That wasn't designed to support people who are actively suicidal. That was designed to make them feel shame. And we weren't getting the help we needed. And so you had to keep doing that. Right. And then maybe over time, I don't know if this is part of what happens, but you realize the people that were pushing back against you, as you said, it wasn't about you. It was their fear. I think about even when I used to teach the mental health first aid for the youth, the youth mental health first aid. And it was like, okay, so ultimately you are afraid that if you bring up suicide and you talk about it, you're going to make it worse. You're afraid that if we do this, this is going to happen. Okay, to me, my initial reaction is that you're ignorant and you're a dick when you just like don't won't talk to somebody about it and you won't support them. That's my initial reaction. Context, you're afraid because you don't understand it. Yeah, it's like if I say when someone's like, oh, I don't want to jinx it. I know there might be some people listening that have a different belief about energy and how the world works. I don't actually believe that if I say something, I'm going to jinx a sports game. I'm not there. If I right. watch it or I don't, it's, it's going to happen yep. either way. And so, but it, there is that fear. And I think it's a sort of power we take on because we're so afraid of screwing up. And so I could yeah. imagine if you went back, you're thinking a lot of that lack of support wasn't about me. It wasn't even a, a resistance to wanting to help people. It was a fear of going out of what we knew yes.
1: and it going bad and it not yes. being what we want it to be. And exactly. And, you know, that took a long time for me not to take it personally. Like, okay, what about me? And that came back from like family of origin. Like, what about me? Where's my voice? Does my voice not count? Um, is it not good enough? Am I not good enough? Am I not worthy? I mean, you can go down that rabbit hole so fast. It's amazing. And, you know, coupled with the stigma of why, like you said, when you were teaching, you know, it's like, oh, I'm not real comfortable. You're absolutely talking about something that absolutely makes people uncomfortable. Yes. Yes. And people like to shy away from that. I always say when someone's crying, what's the first thing you do? You hand them a tissue, not because you're like this wonderful person. It's because your tears are making me uncomfortable.
0: Right. Or with little kids, stop crying. You're okay. Shh, yep. sh- 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 stop crying instead of just sitting next to them while they cry. Yeah. hundred percent.
1: And so I think, you know, all those things were the part of the dynamic of why it was, you're talking about something that makes people uncomfortable. You're talking about lives dead and alive, you know, in that context. And then you're sitting here doing your own little work inside internal work going, am I good enough to do this? do I know what I'm doing? And what if this fails? And I know that there was a lot of pushback of the, what if it fails? What if it fails? And like you said, texting back then was still like, we're just walking into it. It's not today. (laughs) And I, I think back to the saving graces of the people that I talked to, like in California, that was just like, been doing this for years. And I'm like, oh, thank you. And I would lean so heavy into them and say, you know, reassure me, validate me that I'm on the right path of doing this. And, um, you know, I think that's where you really have to take on your own and say, I will find the support. And I will find people that do believe in me, even if I have a little voice in my side myself that do I believe I can really do this? Yeah. And it, you know, it's, it was new. It was a new thought. It was very new. Um, But I look back and go, okay, I could have stopped so many times, to be honest with you. Yeah. You know, from the people that glared at me and said, who are you? To the people that says, well, we all know you're not credible. These are true things that I was told to my face. Mm. And I think, but isn't that exactly why we need things like the hope line? Right. That we yeah. have a resource to say, that was really hurtful. That was really mean. This person called yeah. me not credible. Like, maybe I'm not. Yeah. And so it was sort of a double-edged sword of going, okay, you're going to say these mean things to me. You're going to be the mean, I always call them the mean girls at the lunchroom, right? <laughs> In sixth grade. I don't want to cave into them to the mean girls in the lunchroom. That's exactly the protection and safe space that I want. So when you do have those mean girl conversations, you have this safe spot that you can text and you can say, that was really hurtful. They said mean things to me. Without judgment, without pull yourself up. Oh my gosh, that's such an old, old thing of let's just dust off and move on. Oh my gosh, what does that do for anybody? Nothing. It just stuffs mm-hmm. it farther down and puts more weight in your backpack to carry on through life. Um so in in a odd way, I'm grateful for them. And I look at now, and a lot of it was done out of jealousy. That wait a minute, you're thinking in a in a maybe four steps ahead. And it was, well, if she's doing this, then how will I look? compared to that person.
0: Well, now they're doing the thing that your voice was, which is how, what about me? Where do I fit in? Do I belong? Am I not going to have a voice? I want success. I want this. And so it's protective mechanisms of their ego gone awry, you know, to try to pull you down so they could feel okay. And that is just a product of how our culture works in general. It's a lot of how we see shame being Expressed is I feel unworthy and unloved, and I don't feel secure. I need you to come down here. I need yes. you to be down here with me so that Absolutely. I can be okay.
1: Absolutely.
0: When you started, was your focus the individuals that were actively suicidal, or was your focus on the families that had lost someone,
1: or For both? I guess original support group and walk. It was for the people that did lose somebody to suicide, but as it progressed, I went, wait a minute, that's the postvention, man, could we back this up? And that's where I really started to explore like um, somebody that died by suicide and went, wow, they were texting their friends. They were texting their friends for hours saying this really hurt, this really hurt, this really hurt. But those friends didn't have any skills to go, whoa, this is really serious. Right. And more and more of those interactions and those conversations, I looked at that as a window of opportunity to say, man, this is the prevention side. This is windows of Mm. opportunity. This is windows that we can breathe hope into somebody that's saying to us, I need help and I don't know how to fix it. And that's where the Hopeline idea came and said, you know, If somebody is sitting there texting and saying this hurts, but they're texting somebody who doesn't have a skill set to say, how do we work through this? And when is it to a point of that I need to intervene versus, hey, so what? You know, what, and especially in our, and that's in Wisconsin, go have a drink, forget about it. We throw things very flippantly at people. Have another drink, you'll be fine. It's no big deal. There's more people out there. You know, there's another girl. There's another boy. You can date whoever you want. It, those are quick little band-aids that we try to say to make us be like, hey, we don't want to deal with this. Or sometimes you don't. You need to deal.
0: And I mean, and I think that's, again, that sort of product that none of us really, and I don't want to say none, that's a blanket statement. The majority of human beings weren't given the opportunity to learn how to do that and how to move through a feeling. And I think about... I'm really trying to be intentional about that with my daughter Everly, but there are things I'm going to miss. Like I have a master's in this. I, you know, I had a kid, I wasn't, I was 32 when she was born. And so for a lot of my friends that had kids when they were in their early twenties, I'm a very different person than I am now than then. So when I think about all these skills, all these tools, all these resources, I have a, financial stability that allows me to be more present with her. So she doesn't have to go to school from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. at night every day and all of these things. And there's still going to be things I'm going to miss. And okay. so it's also, I think, this drive, like we have to get it all and and do it all and know all the right ways to do it. And I think that's also what scares people sometimes from going into the intervention side is, yeah. but what if I can't fix everyone? What if I can't solve every problem? And I think it sounds like what you learned is that what was missing for a lot of people was the opportunity to talk to somebody who could meet them with whatever the support was they were looking for. Whether that was the thing to say, the connection to another resource, the knowing when a major help needs to be called, that part was missing. And so we go, okay, we're not going to get everybody. But the problem is right now without it, we're missing a lot more than if we were to be able to put this out. And so there's this weird Piece And I think we have to sort of take that on. My husband's in emergency medicine and he's got to go through that too. You know, he's had patients die. That has happened. Whether they've died by suicide, they've been murdered, they've been, you know, died from an accident. He's had to move through that. And the majority of people don't. And so he can't just be like, well, hands up. We're not going to try because, you know, stuff happens. It's out of our control. We go, what are the best ways that we can show up to try to really support the majority and then systematically change the design of how we're talking about things. Yes. So I think that's really the beauty of what you guys do is Okay, here's the here's the hope line. And I make sure for everybody listening that this is linked in there. And it's, it's not just specific to Wisconsin, there are hope line access points all throughout the US. There's all sorts of beautiful texting support systems, and even other apps that have been created since that time, that really do offer this support. And I've had multiple clients when I worked in Wisconsin, here in Portland, I've had lots of clients, particularly teens and young adults that have used a form of text crisis line because of how amazing it is and the way they can get support. But then you were also going on the other side and going, now we need to change the conversation. We need to have more people be willing to talk about that. And you've had it on both sides. You've had people who've lost someone to suicide that are sharing stories that are talking about things. You've had people that have themselves been actively suicidal that have shared what they've gone through, how they've moved through it. And then you've got educators that are doing this as well. What do you think have been some of the biggest changes? What are you noticing? What did people need to hear? How are we breaking through that fear and making this conversation more accessible for people?
1: You know what? I think for one, we have a generation that's not going to accept us saying, just pull it up and move on. And, you know, we hear all the negatives of the generation, right? But I think there's, they're change makers in a lot of ways. They're seeing that these gaps are opportunities instead of shaming them. Like, oh, we see a gap of service. Now these are an opportunity. These are an opportunity so that we can have say, you know what, this is making me anxious without a judgmental look that we can say, you know what, today, I got out of bed and I took a shower and brushed my teeth. And that is all right because I'm working through depression. We're seeing more of that kind of conversation, which is real, instead of the fakeness that I think that we've had for so long or the well, we just don't talk about that subject. Sort of like we just don't talk about it at the supper table. So I definitely see that this generation is, uh, is changing. And changing the way we have that conversation, I think we have so much past generations that kept quiet that they now have to share their stories of saying, "Yeah, you know, I did have a mom that had mental health issues," or "Yes, um, you know, we always just talked about the uncle, but you know what? Now in retrospect, let's let's have that conversation." I think you're also starting to see, you know, we went through a pandemic. Um, and you know the, I loved how that all the statistics were thrown out, you know, suicide's up two hundred and ten percent. Okay, so what are we gonna do about this? Are we just going to be outraged? Right. or are we really going to come together and say,' let's look at this as a I love that you said it at the systems of what are we doing? Where are we meeting people where we're at? And I think that's one of our biggest faults. We don't meet people where they're at. So, mm-hmm. for example, like we have Hopeline in the bars and taverns. We have them on. Beer coasters. We have them on beer glasses. We are down and people would sit there and say to me, My God, Barb, you're promoting alcoholism. No, I'm not. I'm saying that you know what? People might go to a bar and talk to their bartender and say, Oh my gosh, I just lost my job and that's gonna make me lose my house. I want that bartender to be trained to say, this might be a time you want to text the hope line. We have this, we have to start shifting of that everybody can be a gatekeeper. You don't just necessarily have to have this degree, so to speak, but that everybody can keep their eyes and ears opening of what people are truly saying, be active listeners instead of, oh yeah, well, everybody's had a heartbreak. Um, We have to change that, that we're not constantly just saying and dismissive of it which means we also have to be more awake as a community. We've lost the connection of con- helping each other out. What's their problem? It should be their problem. No, it's a community problem. If we don't think that suicide's a community problem, we're fooling ourselves. It
0: is. Well, why would it have gone up so much if we, what we lost in the pandemic was community? And we saw suicide rates go up. So it's like, there's, I know there's other factors, but what we know is that those rates went up as people lost community and connection. And so when you notice those tie-ins, you have to go, okay, there's a reason for us to reframe this. And I think one of the other things as you said that too, that came to mind is, you know, when everything was coming out and I I think this was, this isn't the first time I heard it, but it was the first time I heard it. You know, this idea of if we're really going to attack racism, everybody has to be willing to admit that they're racist. You know, we're all a little bit racist kind of idea. And I really, it was about two years ago when I really, when I was reading books and doing more research and really trying to tackle my own bias, thinking, oh, yeah. So I have to think about how I'm a little bit X, a little bit Y, a little bit, again, going back to that internal work. And I think. With mental health and suicide, it's the same thing. We have to all get to a point where we can acknowledge this could happen to me. This could happen to, you know, again, some people it's Anthony Bourdain or Robin Williams or all these bigger names of people that maybe that hits them and they go, oh my gosh, but he looked so happy or they did this and that helps. But I think it's also recognizing it could be your neighbor across the street. It could be that little kid that you just saw get off the bus. We have to... We have to find the balance between living a life in vigilance because that's not helpful. We can't assume that everybody in every given moment is either going to die by suicide and they're suicidal or they're going to kill someone and all the the terror and the panic that comes in. But we have to not go to the other side too and just say, well, if we don't talk about it, it's fine Yeah, because it's happening It is, and it's, we need to have more of that approach overall. And I, I'm mindful because I know that we're getting close to time. I want to think about this because you are are such a great resource for breaking down those entry points for people. And so some of the people listening to this are going to be unfortunately familiar. They've maybe lost someone. They've experienced their own journey through suicidal ideation and mental health crises. And then there are going to be some people that are listening to this that in their mind or in their known experience have never touched this before. This is the first time what do you want to say to people if you are going to give them maybe a wish or an invitation to take with them? What do you want that invitation for that next step, the change? How do we create more change makers from these listeners? What can they do? How can they be a part of this?
1: And I love that you call them change makers because that's what it is. We have to change these conversations. We have to not set up that everybody has to be perfect, that you have to have everything. Like you said, as moms, we have these unrealistic expectations. And is it okay to say, okay, we're doing the best we can. And that is enough, period, without anything beyond that. I think the word grace has to come by more, giving each other grace, you know, that no, did they... You know, did they purposely not read your email? No, maybe they're inundated with emails. Right. The, the sense of instantaneous we've got to get from. We cannot continually just live like we have to, have to, have to be on, on, on. Mm-hmm. You know, resting our body, our mind, and our soul. And and having the ability to say, you know what? We are all works in progress. Somebody said to me the other day, they're like, I'm just so broken. And I said, well, great, because everybody has their own little (laughs) pits of broken. Welcome to society. But we don't talk like that. And we should. And we, I shouldn't say we should. I hope that we get to a point that we all realize we all have a little bit of a, a scrape here, a bump here, and so forth. And there's nothing wrong with it. It makes us that we're alive. You know, someone said to me, they're like, well, you know, I hope someday when I if I, I die, that my every my house is organized and clean so whoever comes in doesn't have a mess. And I thought about that and I said, you know, when I get to that point in my life, I hope there's nose prints for my dog on the window. I hope there's papers still that I have never even sorted out because that means I'm living my life in progress and not just stagnant. And I think we have to embrace that. You know what? That's the change we need. Like, hey, we're we're doing the best we can, we're just doing it, and puts away some of this incredible judgments that we have towards things that maybe we don't even know or understand.
0: Yeah, I like that a lot. And I think about, I read the Bell Hooks book, all about love recently. And one of the things that she talked about in there is how So many people confuse love with abuse and how we've basically made dysfunction so normal that people almost say it like if you say, well, I'm a multitasker as if it's a good thing instead of kind of questioning it. And one of the things I've been really holding on to is how do I basically recategorize dysfunctional things as being dysfunctional? Just because a million and seven people function this way, or I have no idea how many people live in the US, but uh, you know, speaking for you and me in the US, and we know this is like this in other countries, just because it's normal here that everybody's working all the time and everybody does X, Y, and Z, and you're supposed to go to school and then go to college and know what you want to do, and success is supposed to be this ladder system, that does not make that healthy that does not make that right, that does not make that the actual wants and needs of the majority. And so really starting to reframe that too. And so it sounds like even the invitation in that willingness to show ourselves grace and that willingness to recognize, you, know, you mentioned this early on, the success piece and reframing success, I think it's also recognizing that the system is designed to keep us tethered to shame we're still going to exist in the system. We can't completely leave. You're going to go to another system. There's going to be more. But you can decide you're going to write the story differently from within it and start to do the work to be a ripple of change for those around you. And that is something as small as when somebody isn't feeling well, just saying, I'm here. Yeah. Not telling them it's going to be okay. Not trying to say, well, what can I do? How can I fix it? How can I do that? Because it's not about you. Just, I'm here. It's really hard sometimes. And I'm here. Yes. Tell me about what's going on for you. Tell me what that feels like. And just letting them hold that. And I think maybe now I'm adding on step number four for people, but even thinking about <laughs> this idea of when my daughter gets upset, I try really hard not to try to fix it for her, not to yeah. try to focus on, well, what's the solution? How do we get you out of this? But instead, really thinking about how can I just be with her in this because she's learning emotion processing. And I wish for so many of us, that's what we had. Like there are days, my husband now knows when I get to that point where for me, it's mostly my anxiety and my shame go hand in hand. They kind of build up, build up, build up. I am again, that performer, that perfectionist. I have that shame driven fear. I can't tell anybody or they'll reject me. And if I don't, use my skills to tell people before it builds up i reach a certain point and then i need to be told this is this is what i look for this is my validation i come out of it is that my life is harder than everybody else's and that he gets it i do not believe my life is harder than anybody else's on a normal headspace but in that moment it's it's like i need some validation that my pain is real yes and i I just need someone to say that because I don't yet have the skills to do it for myself all the time because I lived too many years without it. And so sometimes it's just telling somebody what you are going through sucks. Yes. You don't need me to fix it. You don't need me to solve it. In fact, you're going to move through that feeling. That's literally, we are emotional beings. Emotions are transient if we know how to move through them, if we give people the space to move through it. And so if we could do that,
1: Just think how different that would be. Yeah. And let people feel the feelings instead of trying to change their feeling. Oh, no, no, no. You don't feel that way. Let me tell you how I think you should feel. Yeah.
0: Right. (laughs) Or coding it in toxic positivity. Let's
1: put some layers over this. This will make it look better, feel better for me, not for them. No. And I think that's so crucial. Like you said, you know, um, my husband is is a retired um, law enforcement and I sit there and I'm like, you know, sometimes you could just feel the feelings. You don't have to fix it. You don't have to control it. You just let me have to feel the feeling and then mm-hmm. I can process it and go through it. And I mm-hmm. think sitting in pain, I think we do a hard, we, do, we don't do that well enough in our world. We want to like, let's get over this. I always say grief has become like a drive-through. Are you done? Let's go. Move on. You can grieve. You do you remember what? There was a time when funerals lasted weeks, right? You, you read about these funerals that lasted a week. Think about in COVID, people couldn't even see their loved ones be buried. You know, it's like, did we just dismiss that grief is an emotion and a feeling? And yeah, let's feel our feelings instead of and and hold space for them instead of like, uh, are we almost done? This is sort of like right. uncomfortable for me right aren't, aren't you better yet this
0: is yeah. this is good right let me make a, a few jokes and yeah. kind of move it along and yeah. so i will put all of the links to the center for suicide awareness to the helpline i'll put all that down in the show notes but i i want to Just kind of give you the opportunity if there's any last few things that you want to say to people. Of course, I'll put And if you have other resources, send them to me so I can put them down there for people to I'll add some of my own. So for any of you that are like, I just want to know where to go to keep the learning that will be there. Yeah. But what do you want to leave people with today as we wrap up?
1: Your story is your story. You don't have to change it to meet other people's storylines or perceptions. Your story is valuable because it's you and you are valuable.
0: I love that. Makes me think about the person you said that, you know, maybe lost somebody to suicide and then they close their blinds and they shut themselves out. It's the beliefs that their story and their loved one's story isn't worthy of being heard and seen and celebrated. And again, coming back to that point, everybody's story is, and those lives matter. And we need to come back to that place of realizing that. Yeah. Oh, Barb, this has been amazing. Thank you so much. Listeners. This is just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to talking about things like suicide. We didn't even get into some of those components of what might it look like? How might you tell? There is yes. so many resources. Check out the Center for Suicide Awareness, even if you're not in Wisconsin. There's tons of resources, tips, tools, other yes. links to places, all sorts of stuff. Reach out to Barb. Barb is always interested in helping people however Absolutely. she can. And so just know that. Know that this is a conversation that we hope that you could come into fully and and just be open to it doesn't it is a hard conversation that doesn't have to be hard we can just be in it we can feel we can explore we can talk about it so keep doing that let me know in the voice memos if there's questions you have if yeah. we want to bring barb back on and have another q and a discussion whatever that is let us know Otherwise, for now, I will plan to see you all next week. Barb, again, thank you so much. This has been incredible. And listeners, enjoy the rest of your Sunday.